Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of July 27th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm joined again today by my colleague Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. How are we doing, Josh? Doing pretty, pretty all right, I guess. That's all yeah. I can ever say. I just there always has to be an I guess at the end because I, I say yeah. it and then I think, well, am I? I guess so. Well, and it's hard <laughs> to differentiate at this point in the environment. So, right. So let's let's jump into. It. We want to talk about a couple of things today. We want to talk a little bit about attitudes on Confederate memorials and monuments, uh, which has been intermittently in the news and the public discussion, and then talk a little bit about an executive order that uh, Governor Abbott issued yesterday regarding uh, voting in elections for the general election um, and some some changes that were sort of long, one long promised and the other, I think maybe a little bit surprising uh, on mail-in voting, but we'll get to that. So first, Confederate monuments. Um, we have a, a piece that Josh and I wrote that we posted on the UT, on the Texas Politics Project website today, or yesterday, I guess. And... Um, you know, that looked into data that we've collected on attitudes towards what to do with these monuments. And, you know, this has been a, a an intermittent issue over, you know, really over several years. I think it really, you know, kind of reached a, you know, its first recent crescendo after the Charlottesville uh, protests and counter protests around a Robert E. Lee statue in Charlotte in a Charlottesville park. Um, you know, responses to that, that, that actually in response to various, uh, uh, protests and actions that were taken in, in, in the wake of, of those protests, um, closer to home, UT removed, UT Austin removed several statues, uh, including one of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, but also a few others, including Woodrow Wilson, mm-hmm. um, whose racial attitudes have long been known and long been controversial. In some ways, UT was ahead of the curve on that one to the extent that uh, Princeton very recently announced they'd be renaming the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton. Um, So this has been kind of brewing for a while. And, 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 you know, we tried to get at this with a survey item that created like a range of options on what first the UT Texas uh, Texas Tribune poll, then more recently on the poll that we did for the Texas Politics Project. Right. Uh, the, so the question that we use, I mean, just to lay this out, and and you know, one of the things I think is always important is you know sometimes things are simple and we can just say you favor or you oppose something, and sometimes things are more complicated. And ultimately, at the time that we created this question. I think we hewed towards allowing a little bit more diversity of opinion uh, than just basically remove the monuments, keep them there, because the discussion was still forming, and I think it was a good idea. So we asked people, which of the following is closest to your opinion regarding 
Confederate statues and monuments on public property. So again, we're talking about, you know, in places like the Capitol, other sort of public spaces. And there are four options. They should be removed from public view. They should be moved to a museum or other site where they can present it in a historical context. They should remain where they are with historical context provided, or they should remain where they are unchained. And then, of course, people can say they don't know or they don't have an opinion. But the idea here is that we're allowing people two different points of distinction between keeping the statues and removing them. So if you want to keep the statues, the question is, do you keep them and just leave them alone or do you keep them and add additional information? If you want the statues removed, you know, basically, should they be removed and thrown in, into the garbage heap or wherever or melted down? Or should they be moved somewhere else where they can be preferably a museum and where they can be put in, again, a broader historical context about slavery, the Civil War, et cetera? Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, uh, you know, we were you know, joking recently, if <laughs> one can joke in the context of this topic, you know, about, you know, one of those gradations, like, you know, adding context, I mean, what it really mean, but that was something that people were discussing at the time. Well, and then, you know, in turn, yeah, go ahead. Well, as I say, I mean, that's a reflection of the discussion. I mean, you brought up sort of the, you know, I mean, what's interesting is these, these statues have, have, have existed on public property for a long time, though, as many point out, not as long as you might think, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of these were erected in basically during the civil rights movement, which should give you some indication about their purpose. Um, but ultimately, you know, the you know the violence that that took place uh, in Charlottesburg, in particular, started a discussion where people had to start to really assess: Wait, why are we defending these statues? And so then, ultimately, sort of these gradations of opinion started to appear, where people said, "Well, no, no, no. Look, I mean, I understand the statues have problems, but the, the solution is not to remove them; it's to actually explain the history more." Now, ultimately, it's not our job to say whether that's a, a good argument or not, but that was the argument that people were making at the time. And ultimately, you know, it was worth sort of allowing for gradations. I think and the argument's true on the other side, too, which is, you know, this, there's sort of this overlapping discussion, you know, setting, let's say, for the moment, setting aside the symbols and the messages that these statues send to people. There's another discussion that is more or less relevant, depending on who you are, about, you know, what role they play in our understanding of history. And we allow that on both sides so that for some people who don't think that maybe the statue should be on public property, they can still acknowledge that the Civil War was part of U.S. history. And these could be could take, you know, basically placed in a museum and be helpful for people to understand. For people who are maybe less inclined to remove the statues, it allows them to basically be a little bit less, uh, you know, uncompromising in their view and, and acknowledging that maybe there could be some more information placed with these statues to make it more palatable to people potentially. That was the discussion we were facing at the time, at least. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking a lot of the, you know, I'm just imagining what the, you know, the committee meetings to settle on what that contextualization, contextualization <laughs> would be, what the, you know, writing the, the clarification, the quote unquote clarification plaque by committee. Well. But at any rate, um, I'll say you know, there's, we'll, we'll there's kind of circle say, back to, there's a lot well, of issues here. Well, I was going to say, there's a saying that, you know, if you look back at your old work and you don't cringe a little bit, you haven't grown. And not that yeah. this question was wrong, but ultimately looking at it again with another three years and a further discussion, it's very easy for us to say, well, wait, what kind of historical context are we even thinking about here? Or are people right. thinking about it? And that's an open question. Anyway. Yeah. And, and I do want to kind of sketch out a little bit, you know, just for for another B, kind of the history of a lot of the monuments we're talking about. There were, many, you know, some that were erected during the more modern civil rights movement. So, for example, the uh, we'll talk in a minute probably about the plaque that, after much, you know, maneuvering and bureaucratic 
kind of you know redirection and misdirection was removed from the Capitol in January 2019, that that had been mounted on the Capitol wall in 1959 in the middle of the civil rights movement. The first real wave, as I understand it, of a whole lot of these statues that are in public are in public places, and this is true. A lot of the statues on the Capitol grounds, I think, here in Texas, was in the you know between roughly 1900 and 1920, as you begin to get you know kind of retrenchment of the Jim Crow system in the yeah. South, and you know there's a whole sort of route of looking at where these statues come from. There was a good piece in the New York Times in the 2017-18 cycle of all this. You know that discuss how there was a you know many of these factories are not, many of these statues are not unique works of art. They were mass-produced statues that right. were marketed to small towns and with minor you know with some minor changes and the contextualization of the plaque near the, these statues. Some of them were even like the same figure, like the well, same. A, yeah. Or, you know, some of which were sold to northeastern towns, some of which were sold right. to southern towns. Now, that was that was the you know, best maybe that's a nuggets. quality control issue. But in terms of talking <laughs> about history and the work that contextualization does, contextualization does a lot of work. So, you know, closer to home and to the point, I mean, one of the things that we found was that between the first the first time we asked the question you described in 2017 and the most recent time that we asked it in, in June of this year, we saw pretty noticeable overall movement. And if people were to look at the, the blog post, which is uh, at our website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu, um, you, you can just see it looking at the bar charts, right? Right. I mean, in 2017, the plurality response, so the response that the most the largest share of people picked was to leave the statues alone. 34% of Texans would like to see, said that in 2017 that they'd like to just embrace the status quo is what we'll call it. Leave the statues with another 22% saying that you can leave them, just add some context, which means a majority of Texans at that point said we should leave the statues alone. It's flipped in 2020 today. Now 20% say that they should be removed completely. And that's up from 8% uh, in uh, 2017. If you add in the people who say they should be moved to a museum, you get to 52% now say, we should remove these statues. So there has been a pretty notable shift. But the other thing to kind of note here, this is, I mean, what this is a great example of how, depending on how you read the data, you can get to different conclusions. I think there's a couple things ways to read this. I mean, I think the main point is to say one, attitudes have shifted right towards a, a, a larger embrace of removal and, and a definite move away from maintaining the status quo. At the same time, opinions are still pretty split on what to do with these issues, with with these statues, in the sense that you know you've got fifty two percent who say remove them, you've got forty three percent who say leave them there to some extent. Um, but I mean, another way to look at this, I would also add, is you could say you know if you add up the people who'd have them removed completely, moved to a museum, and those who would have them remain, but with historical context, at that point, you're up to about seventy five percent of Texans who basically say we should do something with these statues. Right. So I mean, there's a lot definitely, of options. I mean, I think, I think the way that you described it when we first looked at this was almost the simplest way to thinking about it is that there are lots of complexities in between, but it did all shift in one, right. You know, in the way that we, you know, I mean, we were talking about the graphic, but it all shifted kind of, you know, I guess it is more or less to a little to the left in the sense that, you know, groups, there right. wasn't a big change in public opinion, but the groups shifted, you know, within them. And that, which brings us to the fact that, you know, part of the explanation for this is that there are real partisan differences here. 
Right. That's right. And so, you know, ultimately, if we look at the groups most and least supportive of removing those monuments, combining the groups, what you find is that 86% of Democrats would like to see the monuments removed to some extent. 74% of Republicans would like to see the monuments left where they are to some extent, either with historical context or not. And so I'd be going back to the sort of this discussion of, you know, the political ramifications and the response, you know, we're not necessarily likely to see a lot of movement on Confederate statues in Texas, right? I mean, what's the evidence tell us at this point? Well, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the biggest movements were really within those groups in a lot of ways, right? And that certainly the number of, of Republicans who said that they should just be left where they were decreased noticeably. Mm-hmm. But so too did the number of Democrats that said, you know, they shouldn't be moved to a museum, they should just be moved. Right. And, you know, it's funny, we were, we were talking about this, I mean, it's not, again, none of this is funny. It's funny, only find us in like a very esoteric data sense. Yeah. But I mean, we were talking about this almost as, as, as a similar to a gay marriage question that we had asked for a number of years on the Texas Politics Project poll before gay marriage was legalized, where we basically asked people whether they thought gays and lesbians should either have the right to marry have the right to civil unions but not marriage, which is a very in vogue in that discussion at that point in time, or basically should not have the right to either civil unions or marriages. And what we found was is that you know even before Republicans moved to being more accepting of gay marriage in general, and especially really after as the a court, group, yeah, as a group, and really after the court legalized it, it just be, has become more of just an accepted fact of life, even if you disagree with it on various grounds. But ultimately, what we found was that for Republicans, whenever there was movement and you saw more Democrats basically embracing gay marriage, what you might see is fewer Republicans opposed to either, but civil unions were something of a way station. It would say, well, I'm not comfortable with gay marriage yet, but I don't. But I know that you know outright opposition to gay marriage is becoming less and less socially acceptable. And so you'd see people moving to the middle category, which is, well, I support civil unions. And we call that a nice safe way station. You're not saying you're in favor of marriage, but you're not, you know, basically holding retrograde attitudes about, you know, the nature of marriage, et cetera, whatever. I think it's, I mean, we're seeing something similar here, which is you're seeing more Democrats move towards, you know, the absolutist, remove the statues. But with everybody moving, you're also seeing more Republicans move from a position that's becoming a little bit hard to defend, this idea of let's just leave these statues alone, there's no, nothing to do about them, into something of a compromise, which is, well, we can leave them, but we definitely need to, you know, we need to put, some, we need to do something to mitigate whatever damage this is causing. Right, which is a really interesting trajectory, and then enter Donald Trump, right? And, then and so enter, then, yeah. you know, we, we see in the interim of this, movement or amidst this movement among Republicans, uh, we also see Donald Trump taking up this issue of Confederate statues as a way of trying to rally his troops in the in the aftermath of the protests. Um, you know, first over the murder of George Floyd and, you know, the way that in the aftermath of that, some of that protest energy did get focused on public monuments. And, you know, the net got cast pretty widely there for a couple of weeks, maybe even mm-hmm. just a few days. But the the president seized on that and kind of doubled down on the protection of public monuments and kind of extended it without getting too into the, you know, the weeds of what the president did at that point. But, you know, basically associated any questioning of these monuments with an assault on patriotism and memorials to American history. And 
I think we see traces of that in this data when you look at, you know, views on the Confederate statues and how they overlap with the most intense of the Trump supporters. Right. So, you know, I think I said previously something like 74% of Republicans uh, embraced uh, basically leaving the monuments alone to some extent. But but the slight plurality among that group would still provide historical context. If we look just at Trump's strongest uh, approver, so we look at only those people who approve strongly of his job performance, 84% would like to see that the statues remain in place. So there's a 10-point jump in the share of people who would keep the statues where they are. And most of the people who approve strongly of the president are Republicans. And then among those, the plurality, 45%, would prefer that the statues remain where they are unchanged. So ultimately, if the president's looking at his strongest supporters to at least you know, guide him or to speak for them, however you want to look at that, ultimately, you know, the vast, vast majority of, of his strongest supporters want the statues in place. And on balance, they also want them left in place unchanged. And so he is speaking to this group when he makes those pronouncements. And, and, you know, the attitude suggests, you know, you know, obviously chicken egg thing here with public opinion and elite opinion and elite signaling, you know, they're speaking and he's listening. Let's say they're engaged in a conversation, the president and these folks, and yeah. it's a conversation with a lot of agreement between them. Yeah. So I think what all this, you know, bodes in the immediate term is certainly we're not going to see much happen in Texas on this front. Um, I think going into a legislative session in which there are going to be a lot of fires to put out, yeah. it will be interesting to see whether you know this becomes one of them. I I have my doubts, but I also think that the um, the discourse about race and racism in the country has has become more high visibility and shown more durability in the last few months than we've seen in, you know, in the recent past. And so I, you know, I would not be surprised if there weren't legislators that were interested in trying to get a, a little leverage on this issue and trying to push it some. Um, whether they can get far, I think is, you know, it's gonna depend on a lot of things. The main thing being, you know, what happens in the presidential and, and in the state elections between wow. now and then. And the, I mean, and the overarching context, right? I mean, I think ultimately, yeah. you know, some, you know, they say, you know, some sessions are difficult. Some sessions are a little bit easier, given the fact that you know this the is a difficult one. This is undoubtedly going to be a very difficult session where there's going to be lots of heated conversations about where to find money in an already tight budget. Right. And so I mean, the, yeah. these these are one of these. This is the sort of issue that I think you know you can kind of group into a bucket of issues that we'd say are kind of about you know sort of. Really, so I mean, it's really social issues and cultural issues, and, and those I think I might define it that way. I'm not sure. I have to think a little bit more about it. But I think sort of a bucket of social or cultural issues that legislators and legislative leadership acknowledge suck up a lot of time, energy, and goodwill between the members and the legislature in a way that, especially in a difficult year, you know, I, I don't know how much. I mean, there's certainly not going to be a universal appetite to take an issue like this on. Well, right. I mean, it, it, you know, when it came up in 2019, which was a comparatively in the last session, which was a comparatively easy year in terms of there was money laying around. There was a lot of consensus on what the main agenda should be. When this subject came up, particularly in the in the Texas Senate, it was one of the most charged and and you know, not bipartisan, not consensual. You know, everybody called that last session the kumbaya session. 
when th- when this when a bill came up that would have made it harder to remove these movements, these monuments and memorials um, in the Senate, it got hot very quickly and had consequences that you know we're still seeing. I mean, in terms of you know what you know. Lieutenant Governor Patrick in that to lower temperatures and to try to, you know, I would use the word mollify, you know, Democrats and in particular African-American Democrats in the Senate promised the creation of a, of a committee to review the art in the gallery, uh, in the, in the Senate chamber, which prominently some Confederates, that committee is, you know, ostensibly is in existence because the, the Lieutenant Governor named it not long ago. You know, I doubt we're going to see a lot of work come out of that committee. Um, to see much action, but it speaks to the to your point that it's harder, the pointed hand that, you know, it's harder to sort of tackle these issues in very tough physical policy environments. But I also think that they do have a way of of coming up, and and you know, I I don't think we're going to hear nothing. It's going to be a matter of what the how the leadership handles it. And, you know, right now, we don't even know who the leadership's going to be in the House. So um, so let's talk a little bit about Governor Abbott's executive order yesterday. Um, Governor Abbott issued an order yesterday that um, gave us a little bit more information about what's going to happen in the November elections. And it seems weird that we're, I mean, it's, it, shouldn't seem weird. it doesn't seem weird in context, but it's a sign of our the unusual times we're living in that, we didn't really know when early voting was going to start in the November election, and it's you know coming up on August. But that the but you know the background here was it because of the pandemic and the various you know adjustments here, and because of the political discussion about making larger changes in the voter in the voting process, in particular mail-in voting. Uh, the governor had said that he would extend the early voting period for the November election. He did that yesterday, and so. Early voting will now have an extra week on it. So, the the election that is still scheduled for the regular for its usual date of November third will now uh, have early voting start on October thirteenth instead of October nineteenth. It's a long time to early vote. It's a non, you know, in some ways that you know. To be fair, I'm tempted to say it's a non-trivial extension. Well, <laughs> um, but the context, you know, makes me want to put a star on that. Yeah, that's um, a, that's, that's a compared to what? <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And um, but you know, sometimes we struggle to be fair at times. No. Um, you know, Abbott also uh, suspended the section of the election code um, in order to enable voters to deliver their mail-in ballots in person. So take their mail-in ballot and not mail it in, presumably. Um, early to the voting clerk's office prior to and during election day. So in other words, that is interesting. I mean, if you really unpack that, it means you can go through the process, request a a ballot that you would send in by mail. You would fill it out, seal it up. And, you know, the way you do that, and I haven't, and I haven't voted by mail, so I don't, I got to say, I don't know exactly what that looks like. Um, But then instead of putting it in the mail, you can cart it down and, Presumably, either hand it to somebody or put it in a secure box. I mean, it'll vary by by county, I'm sure. And turn in your mail-in ballot early. Now, that's a that's an interesting change. Or I'm not, sorry, not early. Turn your mail. You can, actually you can turn it in early, but you can also 
The ban point being you hand it in in person rather than put it in the mail. And, and you can hand it in early. The other thing was you could and hand early, it in. So the other thing is you could hand, hand it in. By and early, right. Previously, you could mail it or you could hand it in on election day only. Now you can mail right. it or you can also deliver it early. So this is all, you know, in the context of what has been a uh, kind of a war of maneuver, you know, a chess game between Democrats and, you know, I think we can say civil rights organizations yeah. and allied organizations who have wanted to, to expand people's ability to vote by mail, um, which has been resisted by, by the governor or by the state government really in the personage of the of the attorney general. But the governor's been pretty you know, clear, I think, that he's not really interested in expanding this. And this falls within pretty conventional in some ways. For such unconventional times, it falls within conventional partisan views of this, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, ultimately, you know, there's a lot of constraints, I think, that Abbott's facing here. Uh, you know, in general, there's a belief, I think, held, you know, which may or may not be true, but it's certainly held by a large number of Democrats and Democratic operatives. And and I don't know whether Republicans, they certainly don't agree with it in open court, but I'm not sure that they disagree with it, which is that, you know, as turnout gets higher and higher, you tend to sweep in more Democratic-leaning voters into the electorate in the sense that people who tend to vote tend to be older. Uh, in a state like this, if they're older, they're also whiter. If they tend to be more affluent things like that. These are people who just tend to identify at higher rates of the Republican Party. As you start to expand the pool of who shows up and votes, and you start to sweep in more young people, more people of color, people of lower socioeconomic status. You tend to sweep in more people who are, you know, on balance, more likely to identify with the Democratic Party. So there's some raw politics here. And what kind of falls out of that raw politics is that Republicans in Texas and really everywhere for the last, I would say, you know, to my mind, you know, formally for at least about 15 years, started in about in Indiana, I think in the mid 2000s, have really gone to great lengths to uh, paint the election process as under constant threat, threat of voter fraud, threat of bad, threat from bad actors. And that essentially what this has done is one, it, this view has replicated itself in the Republican electorate. So when we ask questions in polling, like, you know, how often do, you know, people, voters knowingly break election laws? For example, what you find is that, well, 9% of Democrats say this happens frequently, so 1 in 10, 30% of Republicans say this happens frequently. Another 39% it happens say it happens sometimes as opposed to rarely or never. And really, whatever question we ask about voting, whether it's about undocumented immigrants voting, uh, you know, foreign actors influence elections, basically Republicans see voter fraud as an ever-present and constant and pervasive problem. And what that means is if you're a Republican elected official, any proposal to loosen the voting laws in some way that will expand access or make it easier is already being met by a set of attitudes that, that to some degree is being created by those same officials uh, within their party that says, well, wait a minute, you're just going to contribute to the fraud and you, your job is to fight it. And so, I mean, that's, that's one of, I think, you know, the political sort right. of context that makes it difficult to see a broad expansion. And I'll say one other thing on the other side, I mean, just, you know, the other side of this is just, but practically... <laughs> you know, we know that there are, you know, the process of voting is going to take longer and be more complicated because, and by complicated, I don't mean for the voter per se, but I mean for the, for the poll workers, the people who have to sure. clean the machines, have to keep people separate from each other, have to make the election process orderly. There's going to be less of these poll workers 
on basically around for election because most of the most of the people who actually volunteer their time to do this are, are old. I mean, if any, if any of you have voted recently, you don't go and see a bunch of young, spry people sitting there <laughs> at the voting tables taking your ID. It's, it's generally older people who are more susceptible to the coronavirus. And, you know, ultimately in what we expect, what should be a high turnout election, setting aside whatever impact the pandemic has on people's decision to turn out, you know, the state's not really set up to handle the volume of voting with fewer and fewer people. And I think actually the point you made about, you know, being able to hand in your mail-in ballot, I mean, to me also, I don't think Texas wants to sit there on election night and say, we don't have a result and we won't have a result for two weeks because we're waiting for all the mail-in ballots to come in, which just went up dramatically. And so part of what they're doing is they're providing people more options to get there early, more options to get their mail-in ballots turned in before election day, because ultimately mail-in ballots only need to be postmarked by election day. And I think, you know, in an election like this, an environment like this, you know, this is about the extent to which Abbott can say he's doing something about this without triggering, I think, Republicans in particular uh, about, you know, the idea that he's basically backlash, that he's not concerned about voter fraud anymore. Well, and and I think, you know, if you look at the most recent questions we asked about this, you know, these suspicions of the process and, you know, the the skepticism with which you can expect Republicans to greet any, you know, we'll call it increased flexibility in the in the voting process, you know, is being reinforced by the fact that, you know, we have a certain, you know, a, a, a small but not, you know, a minority but not insignificant share of Republicans who are skeptical about overreactions to the pandemic, shall we call it. And so if you look at the questions we asked in the most recent, in the most recent uh, Texas Politics Project poll, you know, you can see that, you you can see that when we asked if Texans were allowed to vote by mail, how would you cast your ballot? You know, 54% of Republicans said in person early, another 28% said in person on election day, only 13% said by mail. And given the you know, the, the demographics you were talking about, a lot more Republicans than 13% are eligible probably to vote by mail. And they probably And then if you should. ask them if they either, you know, support or oppose it, uh, just vote, you know, allowing tex- all Texans to vote by mail in response to the coronavirus, 72% of Republicans opposed it, 88% of Democrats supported it. And, you know, I don't see that changing. Um... You know, so I think, you know, you know, in the way that you unpacked this, I'll be interested to see in the next few days, if it's not just swamped by other developments, how Democrats and civil rights organizations greet this, this change. I mean, they're not going to, I don't think anybody's going to, any of those groups are going to give Governor Abbott a pat on the back for this. But it's arguably at least a little bit more of an opening up. And I, and I would still argue, and I, you know, we're not going to have time to like unpack the court decision again. We've done it on the podcast yeah. before. There's a little bit of an implicit recognition here that the vote-by-mail regime has loosened and that more people other than those that we've thought of as most eligible in the past, that is mm-hmm. people over 65 and people with disabilities and severe health conditions are going to be voting by mail. We saw it, you know, in the recent runoffs and 
it feels to me a little bit like there's an implicit recognition here that this is going to happen a lot more, you know, despite what the state has been arguing unsuccessfully for the most part in court. Yeah. And I would say, you know, you can see, I mean, depending on what kind of mood you're in, you could see it as fig leaf or you could see it as cover. Right. I mean, as you kind of, I mean, you, you sort of alluded to directly. Well, but they're I mean, both. I mean, a fig well, leaf is cover, so it's perfect. Well, I, well, it can be both. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Cute. Uh, no, holy, I mean, you holy know. decomposed metaphor, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're alluding to all the court cases here, and I think ultimately there is an aspect of this where, you know, this does allow Abbott to say, "Look, yeah, I I recognize it's a problem, and and I've and I've adjusted the system, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I'm not adjusting it to the degree that all these lawsuits are asking for, but I've done it to the degree that I think is is correct. Let's say given right. the context and the information, and he can say that, and and the truth is, is hey, this provides him both. You know, I mean, probably less fig leaf and more cover, but you know, ultimately, it was—I would say—it was getting hard to think that we would do nothing with the with the with the election, given. Yeah, know, I mean, I would have to admit, I'm I'm probably a little surprised by this, and I, but I'm also not convinced that between now and the election, having—I mean, it's not crazy to think that having now sent a signal that they were open to this, you could still on a separate track and that separate track would have the last name of Paxton move to increase, you know, find ways of increasing enforcement or, or limit the people, people's choice well, and latitude in choosing to vote, to, to vote by mail. So, you know, we're not, um, we're, not just thing, we're not lawyers, but sometimes we pretend. And I mean, I also wonder to what extent, you know, given a number of within the limits of the law, yeah. Given, you know, well, I mean, like I could be a judge in most places, but I'm not a lawyer. Anyway, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think there is an aspect that I wonder also in this, which is, you know, to the extent that the state is facing multiple court cases about the impact of, you know, basically the limitations on people's ability to vote during a pandemic and the limitations being the current regime before Abbott made this change. I'm not sure, and we'll have to wait and see, whether by doing this, uh, we don't see Attorney General Paxson move to dismiss some of these cases as the state basically, you know, at least in the way that it deems best, addresses the concerns of the plaintiffs in these cases. And ultimately, the state has a lot of leeway in terms of how it runs elections. And so it might be that this is basically their response to the pandemic, and it might not be up to the court to say whether it's good enough or not. Well, I think that raises another, you know, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that analysis, but yeah. I, 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 I would say that this is another of an interesting example, another interesting example in the ongoing discussion of just how is Governor Abbott maneuvering in a space that seems to acknowledge the reality and the threat of the pandemic and the reality of his political situation and his political base. And these judgments are like very hard to make. And one of the yeah. things that the, he seems to be doing is maintaining his own room for maneuver while the situation unfolds and everybody figures out what to do. And he's far from alone in that. So, well, and increasingly I, I, he has no choice. Right. I mean, that's the other it's, piece of this, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. This, yeah, the situation is, is pretty, uh, it, it remains, you know, fluid sounds is almost too positive a, yeah. a spin on it, you know, perilous and ever shifting. So <laughs> there you go. with that, um, we'll call it a day. Thanks to our technical crew. Thanks to Josh, uh, the data and the piece, the piece on the Confederacy that we, and Confederate monuments that we've talked about 
are, as always, at the Texas Politics Project website at texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And for Josh Blank and Jim Henson, that's me. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 